Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org. Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with the professor Brandon Warmke. Brandon is an assistant professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He has worked in the areas of moral philosophy, moral psychology, and social philosophy. His work has been featured in The Atlantic, Scientific American, Vox, The Guardian, and Huffington Post. He received his PhD from the University of Arizona. And his first book, which we spoke about today, is titled Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk, uh, which explores the ethics of uh, public discourse with co-author Justin Tosi. And this book is now available for order. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's a really fun read, really insightful. And uh, it talks about, you know, areas of public discourse that we all... um, maybe are susceptible to. Well, not maybe, definitely are susceptible to. And I spoke uh, with Brandon about this uh, today, and I had a really, really fun talk. Uh, Brandon is a great guy and, uh, and very generous with his time and with his insights. So with that introduction, uh, please enjoy my chat with Brandon Warmke. Yeah, there's there's definitely an open frontier, um, which I feel like I mean, you know, I guess pivoting to the to the topic of the book, I feel like this is a fairly I mean, I had never because um, I told you that I initially read your uh, the 2016 paper, uh, mm-hmm. which I guess was the the prelude to the book. Um, and I I mean, it was a really I really liked both the tone and the topic of the paper and likewise of the book. Um, and it kind of stood out to me in that sense because it seemed, you know, it seemed really, you know, accessible and, and topical and really, it connects really, really heavily with, you know, everyday conversations in a way that a lot of, you know, some analytical, analytical philosophy maybe doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess, yeah, we, we should, we should definitely go ahead and uh, start talking about the book. Um, So I'll, I'll have given you an introduction, um, before, you know, uh, I've been recording, but I'll splice it somewhere, um, at the beginning of this. Um, but basically if you could, uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear, cause you, you talk about it a little bit in the introduction to the book, but what's the, the backstory for working with Justin and, um, and creating the paper that then led to the book? Yeah. Well, uh, it's a classic love story. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so uh, I did my PhD in philosophy at the University of Arizona, and uh, Justin Tosi um, was also a grad student there. He was a couple years ahead of me um, at the time. He actually overlapped with my brother. My brother was a PhD student in the philosophy department at Arizona and then transferred out. I was a PhD student somewhere else, and I transferred in. And so uh, Justin actually knew my brother before uh, he ever met me, because they were in the same cohort together. Um, Justin and I spent a lot of time, uh, we, we weren't really friends uh, for a while. We didn't really know each other um, until maybe a couple of years into my, my time there. I was only there for four years, but about a year or two in, we started spending a lot of time together and becoming friends. And around 2014, uh, I think Justin and I both noticed that, especially at the time, uh, a lot of our conversations about politics and morality took on a different kind of tone. Um, a lot of the discussions, well, first of all, they started being, they started feeling to us like they were more toxic and more poisonous. Um, and the second thing we noticed is that a lot of the discussions seemed to be um, self-serving, that a lot of, that it seemed to us anyway, that a lot of people were using these discussions of you know, whatever the topic was of the day, immigration or healthcare, or whatever it was, um, somehow the conversations always seemed to come back to them or um, implied in what people were saying was a kind of, what felt like a kind of moral showiness. Um, and so it seemed to us that a lot of people were using these discussions of morality and politics to impress other people. That's just our, our sense of what was going on. Um, and, and mostly because, you know, I mean, not everyone talks that way. Not everyone talks the way that um, 
that Grand Sanders do. And then also we noticed that there's a kind of a change in me. I don't know how old you are, Jordan, but if you think back to like when Facebook started, <laughs> uh, like I think I got Facebook in like 2006. Um, but it, I mean, I don't remember from like 2006 to, you know, maybe 2010 or so, like, I don't remember people really having many conversations about morality and politics on Facebook. Um, and especially not on, on like platforms like MySpace. I mean, that didn't even, ex- that, I mean, it, it wouldn't even make sense to have a conversation about morality or politics. So all of a sudden it seemed like, it seemed to us that people had discovered a technology and not that Facebook was new, but the technology was using Facebook in a certain kind of way. Um, and, uh, and so we decided to, you know, we read some psychology, we read some, um, some moral philosophy and we wrote this paper. Uh, we wrote it in 2000, started writing it in 2014 and then it eventually got published and came out in, um, 2016. So that's a, that's a bit of a background to the paper itself. And, um, and, and yeah, so Justin and I are just close friends and philosophers. He teaches at Texas Tech University and, um, uh, yeah, so we, that's that's how that came about. Like I said, a classic love story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I um, yeah. So to answer the question, I'm I'm 23, and so I yeah. um, I I mean, I was I definitely had you know elements of social media in my life, you know, long before obviously what you know you were kind of dancing around in your answer, which is the 2016 election. Um, and I do, I mean, I agree. It was just this kind of silly you know way to like post things with your friends and and yeah there was no there was no real talk of like politics or you know any sort of you know grandstanding or shaming or any of these things that you know you talk about in the book and you know i guess it i i guess it probably would have happened either way but maybe you know the polarization of the 2016 election was maybe a catalyst that got all of this going much quicker than it would have otherwise i don't know it's it's kind of a counterfactual we can't ever know um, but yeah, so, so in the paper and in the book, you and Justin introduce this term, uh, moral grandstanding, which is a type of grandstanding, generally speaking. Um, so if you could just, uh, tell us exactly what you mean by moral grandstanding. So, uh, if the, the shortest bumper sticker description of moral grandstanding is the use of moral talk for self-promotion. Um, Grandstanding involves people using discussion of morality and politics to try to impress other people with how good of uh, a moral specimen they are. So sometimes that means wanting others to think that you're, you know, morally decent, where others fall below that threshold. Um, it might mean trying to get others to think of you generally as a very morally impressive person. Sometimes it might just uh, involve a very specific desire. You might want others to um, to to think that you really care deeply for the poor, that you care deeply for family values. Um, so that's, that's the very simple idea. Now in the book, especially we go into a lot of psychology and explain kind of how this works and um, what the sort of motivational story about grandstanding and why it happens. But the easiest way to think of it is grandstanding is people who use public discourse as, as a vanity project. Um, they're, uh, you can think of their motivations as, in a way, primarily involving, uh, involving status-seeking, making themselves look good, trying to gain social status, um, instead of you know, helping others, arriving at truth, um, and, and, and so on. Now, you, as you rightly point out, um, moral grandstanding, you can think of as a, spe- a, you know, a species of a more general kind of grandstand. You can think of like intellectual grandstanding or like spiritual. If you've spent much time in like you know, religious communities, you probably come across, you know, religious or spiritual grandstanders. And so, you know, if there's a, if there's a trait that people regard as positive, you can probably, uh, you know, count on it that people have tried to, you know, uh, indirectly use their, their discussions to sort of puff themselves up and make themselves look good. Um, and, and, and the term itself, you know, grandstanding dates back to the 19th century. Uh, we are the first sort of first appearance of it that we could find to, um, where it connotes showing off is a book on American baseball from 1888. And the idea was these players who'd make these catches in the outfield and they would <laughs> jump around and show off and play to the stands. And they, they were called the grandstand player. And, and then throughout the you know, 20th century, this, the term catches on. I mean, and, and then in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, you, you can find lots of records of, uh, you know, 
President Obama calling Republicans grandstanders and, 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 and vice versa. It, it's, um, uh, until about 2015, when another term, virtue signaling, took off, it was the only term that we knew <laughs> uh, to refer to this kind of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you talk about it in the book, but you don't particularly seem to care if people call it uh, moral grandstanding or virtue signaling or even something like moral posturing, right? You're talking more about sort of the the desire to be recognized as virtuous combined with this expression of it. Yeah. So... Um... Good. So we don't really care if people want to use this term virtue signaling, which kind of, it's weird. It kind of came into vernacular, public vernacular in about 2015. It mm -hmm. feels like it's been with us longer than that, but it's yeah. not that old of a term, at least in its sort of current usage. Um, yeah. So we think that what most people mean by virtue signaling is what we mean by grandstanding. So when people accuse others or suspect others of virtue signaling, what they have in mind is, you know, as you point out, what we have in mind, uh, what we call the basic account of grandstanding, which is just saying something in public discourse about morality or invoking morality um, uh, that is strongly motivated by a desire to impress other people. Right. Now, there are, there are some reasons we actually uh, we, we think that this term is to be, you know, better avoided. We, we think it's misleading and ambiguous in a couple ways. I mean, one way the term is um, ambiguous is because uh, if you look at how um, economists and scientists talk about signaling, signaling can mean a couple different things. Sometimes signaling does mean uh, an intentional or um, uh, desired uh, action to send some message or to communicate with other people. So, you know, when I turn 50, you know, I buy a Corvette and, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm signaling something about me, right? Or, you know, Jordan, Jordan pulls up to Whole Foods in his Subaru blasting NPR, right? He might try to signal something about himself, right? He might be doing this on, on purpose. And so there is that, that, that notion that we have in mind, which is sort of like trying to use public discourse to impress others. But there is a notion of signaling in the sciences where signaling doesn't involve any intention or desire to, to send a message. So, you know, like, um, you know, uh, I think you, you use the some, peacocks feathers or something. Right? Uh, peacocks, you can, you know, like there's monkeys, like the, the female, um, I think it's the female chimp, right? Her, her, her rear end turns red during, you know, when she's very fertile. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is a signal to male chimps to, uh, you know, do their thing. <laughs> But it's not like the female chimp is like telling her rear end, like, okay, it's time to go red now. You know, um, she's not so, but, but it is a signal and it's, it, and it communicates certain information. Now, why is this important? Why is this, you know, ambiguity important? Well, um, some people have defended, some philosophers have defended virtue signaling on the following grounds. They say things like, well, what could possibly be wrong with being seen doing virtuous things in public? Right? So, there's that weaker sense of signaling where what you're doing is just communicating that you're virtuous and you can do that without even thinking or trying to, right? Standing in line at, at the post office, um, you know, saving a little old lady out, out in front of a bus, right? Those, those might signal virtue when it's the least furthest thing from your mind that you're trying to actually show off. And so we think because of this sort of inherent um, ambiguity in the term, it's, uh, it leads people astray. I mean, we give several reasons in the book and some other stuff we've written, but another reason to, to disprefer virtue signaling as a term is that it inspires people to talk about vice signaling. So, mm. and, the, and this is, you know, and you, if you're on, on Twitter, or read think pieces, you, you know, you hear people talking about vice signaling. It's unclear what this means, right? Does this mean people doing things that communicate vice? Does it mean doing things that intentionally, that they're trying to show how bad they are? Does it mean doing something that you think is good, but actually is bad? Does it mean doing something that may or may not be good that other people want to criticize you for doing? And so it, they, they, they call you a vice signaler. So we think this, this is just a really unhelpful term. I mean, for, for all practical purposes, we're fine if people want to use it. But when you start thinking about the term, about the phenomenon more carefully, um, we actually think that grandstanding is the, is the preferable term because it's a term of art. I mean, it was a word created for this purpose um, a long time ago. And so it, it does allow us some flexibility to avoid a lot of confusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I guess the way that 
you know, I had initially kind of thought about it. And, and I think this is, you know, I think you say this is one acceptable way to think about it is, um, you know, this, this desire for recognition that you talk about. Um, I almost kind of conceptualized it as like almost a verbal or written like litmus test almost to kind of signal to uh, a group that like, hey, I would fit in here or like I'm a good potential member of this, you know, in group or, or something. Um, and, and then obviously, you know, the grandstanding expression is your, your way of exactly that. It's expressing, uh, you know, why you would fit into that group by saying something, you know, sanctimonious about, well, you know, as a long advocate of X or as someone who cares deeply about Y, you know, this is how I feel or whatever. And it's sort of, it, it always struck me as, it, you know, examples, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about, like you, you say, it's hard to talk about examples of this without seeming to be criticizing the positions, but that's not exactly what we're doing. We're just mm -hmm. talking about, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you've ever seen someone, you know, on their, on their like Twitter or Facebook bio and they have their pronouns, uh, like he, him, like if I put he, him in my profile, there's no one that isn't going to use he or him for me. Like that, I just, you know what I mean? Like that's not an issue, but it almost seems to be more of me saying, it's, it's not me saying, oh, I prefer to be called he or him. It's me saying these are an indication of where I stand politically or socially. So it's almost more of a message being sent um, as opposed to a literal, you know, interpretation of the words I'm saying. Yeah. I don't know what you think about that. No, this seems right. I mean, I do think, especially on Twitter, a lot of what people, how people describe themselves is um, a lot of it is trying to signal what group I'm in. Um, mm -hmm. It's almost like a competition to see how quickly you can get other people to put you in the right box. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so if I can list the six things in my bio that like allow you with most ease and efficiency to put me in the right box, then I've accomplished my goal. Um, yeah, so the, the tricky thing is, you know, as you pointed out about uh, <clears throat> giving examples of grandstanding, um, there's, a, there's a couple reasons why this is tricky. One reason is grandstanding is not defined just by what people say. It's not just any kind of uh, uh, exaggerating, hyperbolic, you know, quote unquote woke or um, uh, religious, you know, uh, overwrought moralizing talk. That's not what grant that's, It's not the, con just the content of what someone says. And we compared this to lying in the book. So just like, um, <clears throat> saying something false is not a lie. Uh, you have to intend to deceive or want to deceive or something like that. Just saying something that looks, you know, quote unquote, looks like grandstanding, that doesn't make grandstanding. And so a lot of, I mean, a lot of very smart philosophers <laughs> who either haven't read our work or read it very uh, uh, quickly uh, think that we're like, that we think that, that we're criticizing like certain kinds of moral discussions, like just in virtue of the content. Like if people are complaining about Trump or complaining about Pelosi or whatever, that that, like we think that's grandstanding, but that's not what we think. I mean, we, what we think is, it's not just any moral talk. It's, it's using moral talk for self-promoting status seeking purposes. That's what grandstanding is. Now it's right that um, it can be hard to tell whether someone's grandstanding. And we say that we spend probably too much time in the book pointing that out. Um, just like it's very hard to tell when someone's lying to you because you can't see what's inside their head. And that's why later in the book, we argue that you shouldn't go around accusing people of grandstanding. Really the way to think about the book is a kind of, uh, self, you know, uh, uh, an occasion for self-evaluation, you know, where, where we should ask ourselves, you know, am I doing this to, to, to do good or just to look good? And, um, and that's not always obvious to us when we're engaging in, in these conversations, but you're right. I mean, um, the way to think about grandstanding is having a desire that other people think of you as a certain way, wanting status, um, wanting social prestige, wanting to um, dominate someone with your moral status, and then saying that thing, uh, you know, be largely because you want to satisfy that desire. So you can think of it in terms of, you know, lying, bullshitting, bragging, demagoguery. These are all uh, phenomena that are, that are very similar in this regard, and that you just, you can't tell whether it qualifies as that thing just by looking at what someone says.
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was interesting to kind of think about you know instances where I had been tempted to diagnose someone you know in the past is like oh this person's morally grandstanding because you know you're right there's not i think you say somewhere in the book you know there's not a a you know necessary and sufficient condition checklist right uh to to identify someone as a moral grandstander but you know there there are <laughs> but at the same time there are also definitely instances where if it walks like a grandstander it talks like a grandstander it might be a grandstander um, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's right so uh, we don't think that it's um, that there's nothing that people can do to um, raise the probability uh, that they're a grandstander. Um, so, in other words, there are things that people can do that provide evidence that they're grandstanding. Um, now, it's not clear that 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 ever licenses or rarely licenses you to make a public accusation. It might license a private judgment um, that, hey, maybe this person is being showy and I should withhold my praise from them to, make, to you know, embarrass them or something. <laughs> but you're right. There are these sort of, there are these pieces of evidence. In, in the book, we, give, we, you know, we have all chapter, as you know, it's called a field guide for grandstanding, where we identify five things that grandstanding, five forms that grandstanding often takes. It's not exhaustive. And as you rightly point out, it's not a foolproof test. Um, because for each of these manifestations of grandstanding, there are, as it were, innocent, um, mm. innocent versions of them. Uh, I mean, one one reason why grandstanding is so sort of quietly poisonous and tricky is that grandstanders don't come out and just say, "I'm the best per- I'm the best person here." Right? Um, I mean, that would be gauche. That would turn people off. They use indirect speech, as we explain in the book, to try to get people to. Um, to get people to talk about, uh, to get people to think of them um, highly. So, you know, very briefly, those, those five things are um, grand senators often pile on. So, um, you know, they might say something like, as someone who has long fought for justice, I just want to add my voice. Uh, we must remember that, that the world is watching. Uh, hashtag, you know, um, do better or something like that. So, yeah. Uh, um, often piling on involves a kind of like getting in on the, getting in on the, on the, on the thing, right? Getting in, showing that you're one of the good ones. Often piling on takes the form of shaming, um, shaming pylons. So you want to, you want to exact your, your own pound of flesh. Um, and we give an explanation for why that happens. But uh, so, so piling on another form the grandstanding takes is what we call uh, ramping up and ramping up is a kind of dynamic that occurs in a group and it has the form of a moral arms race. So uh, so Tosi, uh, my co-author, might say something like, you know, uh, I can't believe her, you know, the senator's behavior. She should certainly be censured if we care about the, the norms of democracy. And I say, are you kidding, Tosi? If you really cared about justice, you would support um, a call for an investigation and the senator should certainly step down from office. We must show that this will not stand, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then Jordan jumps in and said, I cannot believe you guys. You guys disgust me. Um, if you had any sense of, uh, you know, reverence for the norms of democracy, uh, you know, she should be in jail, right? Okay, so there's a kind of ramping up effect. And you see this in discourse all the time. I mean, my view is when you have this, when you have this sort of conceptual apparatus to understand how things are going, it makes sense. So like, for example, within a couple of days over the summer in the U.S., we went from... Uh, reform the police to uh, defund the police to abolish the police in about four, you know, 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And then on the right, we have, you know, masks, masks don't work or they're, they're an over, overstepping of our freedom to, uh, you know, masks are uh, uh, a way for the Democrats to shut down the economy to masks are a conspiracy of the deep state, you know, whatever. So there's <laughs> a kind of, there's a kind of one upsmanship. And as we explained in the book, one reason why this happens is that, People who are grandstanding, they have to get attention. They have to stand out. And one way to do that is to make a more extreme or stronger statement than, than, than the other person. And so there's a kind of, there's a polarizing effect, as we explain in the book. You know, we think we have some empirical evidence that shows that grandstanding leads to polarization. So there's, um, there's this piling on, ramping up, and what we call trumping up, which actually we came up with before, <laughs> uh, before um, our current president. Um, but uh, trumping up is basically the princess and the pea phenomenon. It's people, uh, it, um, 
making it look like they're really morally sensitive. So one of my favorite examples of this is people losing their minds on the right. When Obama, uh, when he was president, saluted some Marines coming off Marine One with a coffee cup in his hand. Now, that turns out that's a, that is a minor breach of military protocol. However, uh, you know, um, Breitbart and Karl Rove kind of lost their minds about this. And so the, the idea is that there are grandstanders who make these tiny you know, maybe moral peccadilloes or even morally innocent things. And they blow them up all out of proportion. What that signals to people is that I have very, very sensitive, uh, I'm a very sensitive moral compass here, right? Um, uh, what, you know, the, the wrongs that fall below the eyes of the hoi polloi don't fall below me, you know? Um, so, uh, so there's the, there's the trumping up and then what we call, um, you know, there's like excessive emotions. So a lot of grandstanders ex- exploit the fact that, especially outrage, they exploit the fact that outrage is a, is a signal, is a, a, often a reliable signal of moral conviction. So if you are uh, really upset and outraged about something, that's, that suggests that you have deep moral convictions about it. And, and so grandstanders exploit this. And so if, if I'm upset about like all kinds of stuff, right, just morally outraged, I get up every morning on Facebook and just like 10 posts about how Trump did this or like, um, you know, how Pelosi did this, uh, you know, I'm outraged all the time that shows that I'm, that I have a very, I care deeply about morality. And then the last form that grandstanding often takes is what we call dismissiveness. Grandstanders often act as if they, um, as if the things that are complicated or complex to the rest of us are just like blaringly like obvious to them. Like, (laughs) oh, you can't see that this really complicated economic policy is the right thing to do. Well, then I don't have time for you. Go educate yourself, do better. Right. And so there's a kind of dismissiveness, arrogance, smugness that the, you know, the grandstander says like, if these issues are complex to you, you are morally benighted. Right. And, but, but, but for me, it's obvious. And that suggests a kind of moral confidence and a kind of moral certainty that the rest of us lack. So again, like I said, all those things, any of those examples could be done in the absence of a, of a desire for moral recognition. But it turns out, at least in our view, that, that the way the grand centers often behave in public discourse tends to fall in one of those, in, in one of those camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing that is, I guess it's so, you know, irritating, uh, that people do morally grandstand because, you know, like you say, it sort of corrupts the more pure versions of all these things, right? Like, you know, for instance, um, with, with the, you know, the ramping up, uh, it's funny because people will go from like in 48 hours, not having, you know, police reform on their top 10 economic policies to it being the number one thing. And then it, or or even having a view about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and it's like, it, it's almost like people don't know how to calibrate. And, I, and, and again, like, it sounds like if I'm bringing that up as an example, it means that mm-hmm. I don't think we need police reform. But it's not about mm-hmm. that at all. It's not about the positions. It's about the fact that it's almost like we just as humans really suck at calibrating our, you know, like our, our certainty intervals uh, on, on, you know, calibrating those correctly to how much we actually know. And the way to kind of add punch to that is to, you know, do all of these things, use moral language, use ramping up, use dismissiveness. And it's sort of a, um, it's sort of like this really empty filler in lieu of actual research or actual knowledge about things. Yeah, that's a nice thought. I think filler is a nice way to put it because there's a lot of filler. It's just, it's a lot of slogans. Um, and again, it's not that the slogan's false, right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's using slogans. I, I think of it as like sort of like moral trinkets, right? So it's, mm. um, you, if you, you collect the right set of moral trinkets, um, you're a person in good standing with your, with your group. And a lot of this, you know, at least in our view, a lot of this is, um, you know, people really do want to belong. Uh, on a side. And, um, you know, as we explain in the book, a lot of people, most humans think that we're morally better than others. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's just decades of research showing that um, most of us think we're better on a host of non-moral traits, but the, the, the effect is even stronger in moral traits. We really do think both in absolute and relative terms where we tend to be better than average and, and morally quite good. Um, and, um, you know, and when you introduce a platform like Twitter, where you have uh, at your ready disposal the ability uh, to get people to think 
that you're this way, that you're morally impressive and they'll praise you and affirm you and like the likes and the retweets. And so that, you know, the chemicals start flowing in your brain, right? It feels really good. I mean, like a thousand years ago, I mean, even a hundred years ago, um, to have that much affirmation, you'd have to like, to have an audience, you'd have to be a preacher or like a politician, like stay on the street corner and yell at people. Now, I mean, anyone can literally just fire up their phone and, and like, and seek this affirmation. And so, our view is that there's a, there's a very basic human psychological desire for recognition and status, and these are very no- natural and normal. What happens is um, if you introduce a certain kind of technology like social media, and I do think our moment is a little different. I mean, I think our culture is perverse in many ways. But one way is that politics dominates, seems to dominate every area of life. Yeah. And when that, is, when that saturates every area of life, um, it just becomes really important to people to display their qualities and make sure that they're, that they, that they're in good social standing with the people they like and they are dominating and um, embarrassing and doxing the people who are on the other side. So, but you're right. I mean, look, this is a, this is a really bad, you know, if we're right, it really is bad for public discourse because as we explain in the book, we love public discourse. I mean, we think it's really important. It's how we identify wrongdoers. It's how we warn of threats. It's how we praise people who are worthy of trust. It's how we solve social problems is having these conversations. I'm big on conversation. I think conversation is actually the right model for political action is, is, is the conversation. Um, however, uh, in our view, people who grandstand are turning this, perverting this protective instrument towards themselves and making it about themselves. And we think that's just not what, uh, I mean, to, to preview one of the arguments in the book, that's just not what a virtuous person would do. A virtuous person, person who cares for civic virtue and their fellow um, citizens is not going to use this instrument that, that should be a resource for all and um, take it for themselves and abuse it for themselves. Yeah. And, and likewise to, um, I, I, I was laughing reading this, um, on, on page 75 you have, cause it's, it's related to, um, you know, the, uh, the, the thing that you say about, you know, we always overestimate how morally virtuous we are, but you know, you talk about one of the social costs of grandstanding is that we'll kind of vilify or have an even worse view of other people. Uh, you, you have this quote, uh, the average Democrat thinks 44% of Republicans earn over $250,000 a year. Republicans themselves estimated the figure to be 33%. In truth, only 2% of Republicans make that much. And you know, likewise, the average Republican thinks that 38% of Democrats are gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Democrats themselves put this figure at 29%, yet the real number is 6%. So everything, whether it's us or or our political or moral foes, everything is just like blown so far out of proportion. It's, you know, everyone's, you know, super rich and tax evading, or everyone is part of the LGBTQ community, or, you know, it's just everyone is, we're, we're like constantly dragging people out of the center of any, uh, you know, position and pushing everyone towards the edges. And, you know, that's one of many, you know, social costs that you guys go over, but it just seems that that, is uh, one of the most obvious deleterious effects for our society of, of grandstanding. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the things we say in the book in, in that section is that um, it's not exactly a polarization. That is the, I mean, we do think, and we, we just published um, a very large psych paper on this um, with some empirical evidence showing that, um, the people who are most uh, likely to grandstand are those who have, um, who are most ideologically extreme, and they have the most affective polarization. So they, they, what that means is they, they hate the other side the most. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there is some evidence that grandstanding is pushing people apart. Uh, now, you might think that's not totally bad um, for various reasons, but here's a reason why we think it's bad in the case of grandstanding, and it has to do with the examples that you mentioned, is that. Um, extreme views themselves are not necessarily false, right? I mean, the fact that we would sort of in 2020 in the West, so you're, you're calling me from, from Pittsburgh, right? So mm-hmm. in, in Pittsburgh and I'm in Ohio, uh, the, the fact that, you know, we would call something extreme, that's not n- necessarily evidence that it's false, right? Um, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is, as you nicely allude to the problem is that grandstanding in virtue of polarizing tends to tends to lead us to false beliefs mm. 
And the reason is because the process of polarization, it's not, it's not a truth sensitive process. It's not a process that's responding to evidence or facts on the ground or data or more, even moral argument. What it's responding to is the, the incentives that are involved in what it takes to impress other people. And there's, I think there's no reason to believe those are going to be truth sensitive processes, unless you think that your, your group is only impressed by the truth, which, mm-hmm. uh, we have to hear an argument for that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the idea is that both sides are, are, um, polarizing against each other and they're adopting views on things that, uh, that are extreme and likely the result of a, a, a process that's not truth sensitive. The incentives are not to stop polarizing when you get to a true belief. It's responsive to the evidence. The incentives are to stop polarizing when it no longer impresses the people that you want to impress or no longer dominates the, the people that you want to dominate. And uh, there's no obvious reason, in fact, no good reason maybe why, why that would be um, something that we should want. Um, I mean, why think that either side, um, you know, what, what impresses them on Twitter on September 22nd of why, why think that is the thing that's, that's actually providing evidence for, for true beliefs. It's not clear to us. So, yeah. So, you know, that's just some of the examples that you, that you, um, that you uh, covered in the book where we argue that it looks like, you know, these are topics, these, these, these are wedge topics, you know, like the fat cats on the right and the, you know, the, uh, the sexually, you know, um, uh, libertine on the left, right? And it's sort of these trope grandstanding sort of ideas. And in our view, one of, the, one of the reasons why people have false beliefs about this is because those sorts of, that kind of grandstanding is effective for, um, for certain communities. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we have this sort of like perverse incentive structure that, you know, pushes us in that direction. And it both, I think it both explains grandstanding and is exacerbated by it it's this sort of weird you know kind of recurrent circle almost where like i I remember in um in college i was a resident assistant and that group of people you know kind of hired to do that job skewed uh very left and like very progressive and you know i i am also very left very progressive uh and and but it was funny because I remember just, I did it for two years and, um, and, and I saw it both years, you know, cause there were different groups at the beginning of the year, not everything had this sort of moralized, uh, tinge to it. But as, you know, as Cass, uh, Sunstein, who you talk about in the book, he, he talks, you know, you have these enclaves of like-minded people, you know, you get them talking and you get them posturing and grandstanding to other members of the group and throughout the year. And it happens really, really quickly. I mean, the only acceptable position is to be farther to the left than anyone else in the room. And when everyone's trying to do that, you, you know, reach a pretty extreme point pretty quickly. And as we just said, that's not inherently wrong, but what is a little you know, maybe brow furrowing about it is the fact that it doesn't seem to be epistemically contingent on new information or new facts or new argumentation. It's more about just impressing the people that you're with. Um, and, and, you know, in that case, it was probably more motivated by prestige. And as soon as anyone demurred, I would say maybe it was more motivated by dominance. Um, but both of those things kind of played played their effects. And um, yeah, it was just interesting to be uh, sort of playing the role of someone who was like, not devil's advocate, but but maybe like a little, uh, you know, apprehensive on some of these things. And again, it's like, I'm, you know, progressive and on the left and all these things. But sometimes you just say like, oh, wow, like, that's kind of an interesting view. And the immediate reaction is not, oh, why do you find that interesting? The immediate reaction in front of a group is, oh, you're a bad person if you don't agree. And it's just, it's very interesting to, um, cause you know, I guess I was watching that happen, uh, after I, I read your paper and it was just really, really interesting to be able to watch exactly kind of, you know, this phenomenon that you guys detailed happen mm-hmm. very organically in real life. It was just a very cool experience, uh, to see that happen. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's really interesting. I, I, my, this is self-serving, uh, sure. but <laughs> my view is that, um, 
a lot of current behavior is puzzling. You know, why do people say the? Th why do they talk the way they do? Um, uh, there was a recent case of a grad student at um, University of Wisconsin Madison who uh, evidently had been pretending to be black, and it's now come out that she was not, and. Um, she resigned her position or as a grad student. And then she also, uh, she evidently she had a, a tenure track job lined up at um, Fresno state and Fresno state rescinded their offer because of this. Okay. Wow. So she, so this is pretty bad behavior. Uh, I think so. And, but she issued two apologies and in one, one or both of the apologies, she apologized for, um, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was like taking up space, taking up, taking up space in, uh, in, uh, as a black person or taking up space in the, it's like, that's a weird way of just saying I was pretending to be black. Yeah, <laughs> right. That is very I mean, odd. So, you know, we talk about black bodies and there's lots of language that we use. And a lot of this behavior is very puzzling um, to a lot of people. Uh, and I think, okay. So back to the self-serving part, I think yeah. a lot of the behavior is self-serving. Why do people behave this way? I think unless you have, a sophisticated story about people's moral psychology. Bless you. And uh, so a sophisticated story about, <laughs> I muted my microphone, so maybe that didn't um, show up. But uh, if, if you don't have a sophisticated story about moral psychology and group behavior, it's, it's going to be like, what in the world is happening? What we hope we offer in the book, and um, we are glad when people write us and, and say, oh, this helps me make sense of the world, is um, we don't think that our story explains everything that's bad on Twitter or, or on cable news, but we do think it explains a significant portion of behavior that if you don't have these tools, like if you don't have the thought that like people think really highly of themselves and they want to impress others, like every area, every other area of life, if you think that like moral talk is like special or precious, like you know, a lot of people we've talked to think that humans are really selfish and they're greedy, you know, and they're like these, you know, they want to avoid taxes and they don't want to give to the poor. But then they, these same people think that when we step into like Twitter or like moral discourse, all of a sudden, like there's like we're all saints and we're all just doing things because we believe these principles. And we thought, looked at the data and we thought hard about it. The thought that we might be doing these things because of egoistic reasons is sort of like it like falls away. And our view is a kind of pessimistic view, which is that, um, you know, if you think that we're selfish in lots of areas of our life, it doesn't go away just because we're talking about more, you know, moral talk. Like morality isn't magic. Like it doesn't turn your behavior into good, into something good just because you're applying terms like justice or, you know, tradition or whatever. It doesn't magically transform it into something special. So, yeah, we do think that um, now it may not be the right psychological story. We may be off. We we may we, we might not have identified you know everything that's going on. Surely we haven't done it. You know, done that. But you know, hopefully we've sort of identified some story that helps people explain why some discourse is so toxic. And you know, we've seen people criticize us um, for peering into people's hearts and, and trying to assess their motives. And the, the, instead we should read, we should assess people's character and motives from their behavior alone. And uh, I, I understand that, but I think that's, I think that's like five-year-old psychology. I don't think that's, that's not, that's not mature, sophisticated empirical psychology. I mean, we just know that our minds are very complicated and we do lots of things um, that we're not aware of uh, why we're doing it. And we know that lots of people do things because they want to avoid suspicion. They want to look good. I mean, it's just part of life. And so, um, look, we understand the worry that we're sort of like mind reading and, and dismissing people's character because they're evil. But, uh, you know, I think there's a kind of seriousness that must be required in looking at human psychology. And it's, it's not, you're not morally good just because you think you are, you're not more, you're, your, your moral talk is not praiseworthy just because you you're really convinced that you have the right values. Um, mm. So yeah, that's a, that's a yeah. really interesting story though. I think a lot of people have stories like that where they have, you know, one thing we say in the preface of the book is that we hope, we hope people see the dangers of grandstanding before they become the victim of grandstanding. <laughs> and then for a lot of people, that's what it takes, right? They, 
you'll, you know, you'll see on Twitter, like things like, I, I didn't believe in cancel culture until they came for me. And then like, it's real, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so, so hopefully, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's a nice, it's a nice place to, to conclude because, you know, uh, in the book you conclude with kind of the question of, well, you know, what do we do about this? And, and like you kind of hinted at, um, you know, I, first of all, I mean, I liked that, that you and Justin kind of throw your hands up a little bit and say, I don't know, we're just, you know, a lot of this is kind of identifying a problem and where to go with it is open to, you know, interpretation and thought, but, but you suggest, uh, you know, a couple ways to do it. And, and one that, you know, we've kind of been alluding to right now is, um, is just, is just, you know, I, I kind of find that like, you know, after you learn about um, cognitive biases or, or logical fallacies, it's easier to kind of notice them cropping up here and there in the world. Um, and I think the same thing kind of goes for grandstanding, at least uh, from the internal kind of introspective uh, lens. If you don't really know about the concept, it might be harder for you to kind of catch yourself, be like, uh, you know, what am I doing this for right now? You know, is this, is this kind of grandstanding of me or is this, do I actually want to do some good with this? Um, and, and so like, you know, thinking about just the concept itself, I think is actually a really, uh, it's a non-trivial first step in, uh, you know, reducing the, the effects of grandstanding and the acts of grandstanding. So I think, I mean, as far as, you know, that goes, this book is, uh, is doing great work. Um, not to be, uh, not to be too congratulatory to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't want that. We don't want, we yeah. don't want to, uh, we don't want too much praise here. Uh, no, that's, that's, I'm glad to hear it. Um, it's nice of you to say, and I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I mean, we do think, uh, it's, it's interesting seeing, seeing people's reactions to the, the work and, and some, we can usually tell when someone's read it, um, before they criticize it, because often they, mm. they criticize stuff that's like not even our view, not even close <laughs> to our, the opposite of our view, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and so, but a lot of people read the work or they come across it and they, and their first reaction, and I think it's understandable, their first reaction is, well, show me who the grandstanders are so I can criticize them, right? <laughs> and uh, I think that's understandable, but it reveals in a way um, the problem that we're trying to address, which is that the goal of morality, the purpose of morality is not to dominate other people or to assert yourself over other people, even if you're in the moral right. I mean, there's, there's costs of blaming and shaming and punishing and resenting. There's, there's, there, there are legitimate downsides of those things. So we just think, you know, the, when you, people learn about grandstanding, they want to they like, okay, tell me who to criticize. Tell me who's doing it so I can pile on. And we think, you know, as, as you know, we think that's just the wrong response. The right response is to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Why, you know, and I've, I've had several people write me and say, you know, you know how many times in the past month I've typed something into Facebook and then I didn't post it because I was asking myself, why am I doing this? And it's such an obvious question, like, why am I doing this? And it's like, it never occurs to us. Like, maybe I'm doing this for the bad, for a bad reason. Um, so, yeah, so we, you know, we, you know, in the book, we give some um, hopefully empirically uh, supported strategies for reducing our own grandstanding. One of the things we say is that this is a, an area where we just need more, more science. We need better interventions into this sort of discourse problem. But the other thing we say is don't call people out for it uh, very rarely. Um, at least that, that shouldn't be your, your go-to. What we suggest instead is, you know, if you think someone's grandstanding, just ignore them, you know, don't, Mm. don't give them the praise that they seek. Um, Don't reward them for bad behavior. Now, if you're wrong and they're not really grandstanding, it's not like you've hurt them, right? Um, It's not like you've done something that you wouldn't have otherwise done if you were on Facebook at all. Um, So, so we think, uh, you know, we hold out hope. uh, (laughs) Sometimes I, I, I think we're too optimistic that we can slowly person by person change the norms where grandstanding, showy, ostentatious, self-centered moral talk becomes, you know, embarrassing to engage in. Um, and that, you know, that people, people reserve their outrage for things that are truly outrageous. You know, if, if you're outraged about everything, um, people tune you out and it's harder to muster outrage when it's actually appropriate. So, um, so I don't, you know, I, I think sometimes I think we're too optimistic, but I do think you're right in that the book does something important in at least identifying a problem and explaining why it happens. 
um, hopefully we've done at least that much. Yeah. Yeah. I think you succeeded on that front. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I guess to, um, to wrap it up, uh, I mean, firstly, thank you. This, this has been a really fun conversation. Um, thanks yeah, for coming thank on. You, Jordan. Just great, great questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so tell people, uh, where is the, is the paper, uh, public access or is it just the book? I don't know if I the found the PDF of the paper, but, <laughs> uh, the paper is open access. Hmm. Uh, so the original philosophy, we, we, we've written some stuff since the original paper, the original paper came out in t- 2016. That's open access. We've published, uh, two psychology papers on grandstanding. Um, one of those is open access. The other one is just now coming out, um, And then we have another philosophy paper coming out on grandstanding and free expression. Uh, There's a preprint on my website. Um, And in the book, the book is, um, it's like 240 pages. It's written for, uh, it's not really written for philosophers. My my, my, my mom read it. Um, She's not a philosopher or an academic. And uh, she said she understood it. So I I, I believe her. It's written, it's it's supposed to be a fun, um, fun book. Uh, Hopefully the people like the jokes. Justin wrote the jokes. Justin's funnier than I am. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So the book's on Amazon. It's about nineteen dollars, and then there's also a Kindle version, and then um, and then a uh, there's an audio book version too. It's available on Audible and Amazon. Yep. Yeah, and it's it walks the line between accessibility and informability. I think so. Yeah. Um, yep. Congratulations on the book, and uh, once again, thank you for uh, coming on. Thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, Like I said at the introduction, I definitely found this uh, a really fun conversation to have um, and very insightful too. So if you uh, want to check out any of Brandon's work or the book that he and Justin Tosi wrote, um, you can do so by clicking on the links in the description below. I'll uh, provide links to uh, Brandon's website and to the book itself um, and to their original paper. Um, you can support what I'm doing on this show if you found it valuable by going to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. Uh, you can also support me in non-monetary ways by sharing this show on Twitter or on social media, rating it on Apple Podcasts, uh, liking this video on YouTube, or subscribing via YouTube or your RSS feed, uh, discussing uh, this uh, show and crediting it on your own show or your own blog. And you can also connect with me uh, or recommend guests or topics to cover. Uh, and to contact me, you can do so at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.